Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. If you were listening to the radio in 1966, it was a true hodgepodge of what was then considered popular music. And right up there with the Supremes and Simon and Garfunkel and Frank Sinatra and even the Beatles was this guy. Yes, that signature Tijuana brass sound. Herb Alpert had no Latin roots, but wanted to recreate the sound he'd heard at the bullfights in Tijuana. When he decided to overdub his trumpet on two different tape machines, he captured it. And he captured more than that. Whipped Cream and Other Delights was the number one album in the country in 1965, remaining on the charts for three years. In 1966, the Tijuana Brass sold over 13 million records, outselling the Beatles. I started playing when I was eight, and I was earning a living on weekends playing. I loved playing. What happened when you were eight? Well, uh... What had you seen or heard that made you say, I want to pick up a trumpet and start playing? Well, yeah, I was really fortunate in my uh, elementary school. They had a band appreciation class, and they had this table filled with various instruments, and I was able to just pick one up and... Where were you going to school then? Melrose Elementary School in Los Angeles, <laughs> yeah. And what did your dad do? Ladies' coats and suits. Yeah. Yeah, that was... He's, he's in the clothing business. He was in the clothing business. He was a Schneider, you know. My brother was a professional drummer. My sister played uh, piano, mother violin, and my dad played uh, mandolin by ear. So your parents were musical? Very musical. But it wasn't their profession? No, not at all. What did your parents think about when you 
were so devoted to music, were they discouraging you of doing that, or they encouraged My you? My dad wasn't so crazy about it. He thought, what do you want to play in sawdust pits the rest of your life? That was his image of it. Okay, now, everybody clap. The brass, as they were called, toured often as a kind of review. In the 60s, we played some college affairs in uh, Upper California. Woody Allen opened the show for us as a stand-up comic. No. Yeah. It wasn't just concert-style music. You had comics open for you and different kinds of... Yeah. Woody opened for us. George Carlin opened for us. Jim Carrey opened for us. I go back a ways, man. I'm older than dirt, you know. <laughs> well. Time he didn't know it, but Alpert was only just beginning an extraordinary career as a musician, eventually earning five number one hits, eight Grammys, 14 platinum albums, and 15 gold. However, those achievements might be seen as a kind of act one to his later, unimaginably successful career as a music producer. We've only just begun to live. In 1962, with his friend Jerry Moss, Albert founded what would become the world's largest independent record label, A&M Records. They signed such artists as The Carpenters, Sheryl Crow, Janet Jackson, and The Police. Rocks! Alpert and Moss started the whole thing with 200 bucks and a handshake, ultimately selling A&M to Polygram Records in 1990 for half a billion dollars. Today, Alpert's a prolific sculptor and painter and continues to make music, touring occasionally. He's 76 and still as handsome as ever. Herb Alpert has always had matinee idol looks, but he never took up acting. Let me tell you something. When I was in high school, I was working at a gym, this agent came up to me and said, man, you look like you should be in the movies. So I said, well, what can you do for me? He set me up with the people at Paramount. I auditioned. They said I was a little green. So I started taking lessons. I studied with Jeff Corey and also Leonard Nimoy. And I realized I didn't have it. I'm passionate about playing the horn. What's the music scene like in Los Angeles then for a young guy who wants to play? Well, it was quite different. It was Shaboom, Shaboom, 60-Minute Man, and those type of songs yeah. that were kind of popular at the time. I had a great experience, though. I was partners with Lou Adler at the time. Now, how did you become partners with him? Well, he was dating my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hollywood. Yeah. I forgot we're talking about L.A. <laughs> Lou was writing poetry, and I started writing some, some you know, music to his poetry, and He's kind of a knock-on-every-door type of guy, and I'm, I'm, the, I'm the shy one. So we got this job at Keen Records in Los Angeles and started working for Bumps Blackwell, who was the producer for Sam Cooke. And Lou and I became really close friends with Sam Cooke. We wrote uh, Wonderful World together yeah, with him. Right. He was really special. He had something very unusual. He was a very unpretentious guy, but very elegant. What did he teach you? Sam had this number one record, You Send Me. Sure. And his follow-up was, uh, I Love You for Sentimental Reasons. And so the owner of this company that I was working for was like an amateur piano player. 
So Sam was recording, goes into the control room and starts listening to a playback. I was there with this owner. And the owner walks up to Sam and says, Sam, you know, in bar 12, you can put in a wo-wo. And in bar 35, you can put in another wo You know, he had the sheet music. And Sam looked at the guy and says, Jack, you can't just put in a wo-wo whenever you want, man. you got to feel it. Yeah. He says, man, you're listening to a cold piece of wax, and it either makes it or it don't. You know, he, he broke it right down to the yeah. nub. For me, what's interesting about your career is not just virtuosic musicianship, but you go on to become a very serious and like incredibly successful producer. Did you feel when you met those people, did you have that skill as well? Oh, no. I didn't have any skills. You didn't? <laughs> no, <laughs> Producing-wise? No, and producing-wise, I, I didn't even think about it. I had an experience at a place uh, called the Annex in Los Angeles, a recording studio, and I was watching a reasonably famous producer produce a record. So the musicians are rehearsing. Plaz Johnson was a saxophone player. He was a saxophone player that played on the Pink Panther. For Mancini. Yeah. They rehearsed. Plaz played this incredible solo. The producer gets on the horn and says, Okay, Plaz, beautiful. Just play the same thing again. And Plaz said, What do you mean? He said, Just play that solo again. I loved it. He says, Did you record it? He says, No, but you know what you, know what you did. Just play it again. I said, Well... I can do this. This is... Uh, right. Always be rolling. <laughs> oh, uh, well, I always do that. Always be rolling. Oh, yeah. Now, great success for you with Tijuana Brass and great success for you recording albums. And When does producing become something, if ever, that was as important to you? I mean, A&M is not some mom-and-pop shop. You and Moss set up a huge company that you sold to Polygram for an enormous amount of money. Because you strike me as a guy that's is a real artist. You're painting and you're sculpting and you're playing music. When, when does it start to really take over the business side in A&M? Well, uh, you know, I surround... Would you let Jerry do that? Well, exactly. And I surround myself with, uh, you know, really quality people, that, people that can do things that I can't. And I'm a right brain guy, you know. I'm, I'm 85% on the right side of my brain, so... Business is, uh, was always a little funny for me. You know, I, Jerry and I always discussed the big, broad s stroke of A&M, but, uh, you know, the little incidental things that happen on a daily basis I wasn't interested in. Front of the house, back of the house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What was it about Jerry that you think it lasted so long and was so successful? He's just a really good guy. He's an honest, yeah. he has a lot of integrity. He doesn't lie. Sounds strange, but we never had a contract. Jerry and I had A&M on a handshake. Yeah. And the only time we ever signed a contract was when we sold to Polygram. Now, during that period when you're producing, I know nothing about how records are made, which must be just completely unrecognizable now from what it was back in 65, you know, technically. Oh, oh completely. Yeah. I did an album called Whip, We Rip, We Whipped, you know. Re-whipped. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm your PR man. Thank you. The guy who had got the uh, concept for this album, you know, got a bunch of young producers together to redo the Whipped Cream and Other Delights album. So they sent me music files on a CD or on a DVD or through the net. I would put my trumpet on, put the trumpet on a CD because it's all time-coded, 
send the CD back to them. They would slip it right into their master recordings. And I never met these guys. I spoke to one. The I, ultimate internet dating. These guys could have been in Afghanistan. It, it would have yeah. worked the same way. Yeah. What was it like before? Well, When you recorded Whipped Cream and Other Delights, <clears throat> which is obviously one of the most famous records ever made. Where did you record that album? Well, it was recorded at Gold Star Studios in Los Angeles. But, you know, prior to that, my first recorder recorder was a wire recorder. I had a WebCore <laughs> wire recorder. So if you wanted to, you know, intercut some things, you need a soldering iron. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel that all this technology and all of the, uh, the power that comes with that has it made people lazy? Like people can't get in a room and they just can't play a song all the way through anymore? No, I don't think it makes them lazy. I think it gives them too many options. You know, now with the digital you know, setup, you have umpteen album, uh, tracks and you can just keep going and keep going and then you can tune them up and you can shift it around, take something that was happening at the end of a song and move it up to the front. Too many options. I think it takes some of the, uh, the heart away. Yeah, I mean, I, I also wonder... People say, what's the difference between, you know, theater and film and the more and more the technical cost of these highly technical fields, whether it's filmmaking, television, recorded music, it's expensive. And so they want everybody, it's almost to the point now where they don't care how you feel about the experience. Because <laughs> I'll stand there and I'll say, well, I want to do another take, man, and I want to feel it, you know. I want to do this whole speech on page two all the way to the bottom of page four, it's like a ski run. I want to ski that hill all the way to the bottom <laughs> without falling. And everybody looks at you and goes, we don't have time for that, <laughs> yeah, man. No, we got oh, yeah. to get out of here. Yeah, I can relate. That's the way the music business is now? No, I don't think so. I mean, it depends on you know what artist you're talking about. Who's someone that you recorded that you sat there and you were like, wow, man, this was really a thrill for me as an artist to watch this man or woman? Get well, going. there are a lot. Of, I mean, we yeah, had some incredible artists. With Name them. a couple that you well, dug the most. Cat Stevens was wow. unusually special. Now I've been happy lately Thinking about the good things to come And I believe it could be Something good has begun Cat has something magical. You guys signed him. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, he was so passionate and so, you know, the, the lyrics and so unusual. He had his own interpretation of all these songs. And it was, he was beautiful. I remember those records, boy. And, of course, uh, you know, the, the police. Sting just writes a great song. And when we saw them, you know, Sting was you know, bouncing around the stage like he was on a pogo stick. They were great to watch. And, of course, I had a, an unusual experience with the Carpenters. I signed the Carpenters. And... Um, on my iPod, I have The Carpenters, mm -hmm. I have Sting, and then I have, uh, hold on a second, I have Cat Stevens on my iPod. Oh, yeah. You got a lot of my money, man. Oh, A&M well, got a lot of my money. Um, well, you know, in uh, 1960, this is an interesting story, if you want to hear this story. Go, tell this me. Is, in 1966, seven, we're, I was doing a special for NBC. Jack Haley Jr. was uh, directing. He said, why don't you sing a song? I said, well, I, if, I, if I can find the right song, I'll give it a go. So, you know, I go through my Rolodex, and I call Bert Bacharach. So I said, Bert, is there a song that you have that you think I could handle, that you have tucked away in your drawer someplace, or you find yourself whistling in the morning, or, you know, a, a, a tune that haunts you? Well, three days later, he sent me, This Girl's In Love With You. Sure. You see... This guy, this guy's in love with you. 
Yes, I'm in love. Who looks at you the way I do? When I watched the video this morning. Of what? Of you singing the song. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and you saw my ex-wife then. That That's was, your ex-wife, that, yeah. sure. Cute, wasn't she? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I record the song. I go. To, I fly to New York so Hal David Hal uh, David would change the uh, you know the, the lyric to suit me. As I'm walking out of Hal's door, I said, "Hal, is there a song that you think I might be able to handle?" Or song that you have tucked away in the drawer, the same yarn I gave Bert. Two days later, he sent me close to you, which was going to be the follow-up to uh, th this guy's in love with you. I recorded it in the studio. I'm, I'm listening to the playback, and my engineer friend, Larry Levine, rest his soul, looked at me and says, man, you sound terrible singing this song. <laughs> Forget it. And I lost my confidence. I put that thing in the drawer. When I signed the Carpenters in uh, 1970, they had an album that didn't sell. I mean, they, the first album was zero. And people at my Describe own. the first album. Why did the first well, it just was it too reliant on Richard Carpenter? No, no, it has, had Karen, but it was very soft. It was very delicate and very. It wasn't really radio friendly. Got it. Uh, so a year later, I gave him close to you. They recorded it, and it was really light again. I said, "This we need we need a little bit more energy on this one because Karen thought she was a drummer. I mean, she and she played drums and she was good." But she wanted to record, and I, when I listened to the recording, I said, no, it's a little too, too light, you know, and we need some more oomph. They recorded it again, and it still wasn't quite there. And so finally we got the, uh, the Wrecking Crew. I don't know if you know that name. Those are these guys that did most of the sessions in L.A. They held, held Blaine on drums and Tommy Tedesco on guitar and Carol Kay. The third recording was the charm. Why do stars fall down from the sky? Every time you walk by Just like me They long to be close to you What's the difference? How do they get there? For you as a person who has this ear, this gift, something happens for you, like an alchemy, where you just go, that's it, they got it. Well, yeah, you know. How do they get there? How do you help them get there? Or do well, you? you? You try to flag them down to the runway, you know. That's what we did with most of our artists. You know, we didn't try to sign the the beat of the week. We tried to get, you know, the, like I was saying, the Cat Stevens and the artists we, we chose were artists that just had their own little identity, which we loved. And, and the Carpenters had that. I mean, I signed them because it wasn't the type of music that I normally listened to, but they were so sincere about it. Yeah. They were so passionate about the music. Unapologetic. That, oh, beautiful. Yeah. One of the most clarion voices oh. I've ever heard in my life. Well, when I heard the original tape, you know, they are, and the original tape was presented to me like, Psst, buddy, do you want to hear a tape? You know, and somebody handed me a tape through the gates at A&M, and I sat down in my... A couch at uh, in my office at A&M and I did what I usually do put on the tape the speakers were on the floor about 10 feet in front of me closed my eyes and it felt like Karen's voice was sitting right next to me on the on the couch so I was just really intrigued to meet them and when I did I just realized this is the real deal so you build this big company you know you got a, you got a, you got a great 
mm-hmm. record company, you and Jerry. And then the time comes, and, and aside from uh, deal making, and aside from uh, you know Polygram making it well worth your while, what was it like in terms of the decision to let it go and to sell the company? Well, I felt something coming. I felt the uh, music file sharing, and something just just felt like the time is right. It was tough. What for, year was that? Well, in, in 1990. Most of these companies were were run by these big corporations, and you know they were throwing millions and millions of dollars around for for new artists. And we felt that you know you you make one mistake at our size, and and then you, your your ship is sinking. So, we just thought it was it was time. And originally we were just going to sell forty nine percent, which uh, we held on to for a long time. And then they said, well, we'd like to gobble the whole thing. And I thought, well, what can I do to throw in a little something? I'd like my catalog back. Herb Alpert, Tijuana Brass, and Herb Alpert single catalog plus Lonnie Hall's catalog. And I got it. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what all artists crave, right? Yeah. Is to control their own music. I, I, mean, I like... wanted it back, and they agreed to it. We signed the contract. And... and you made the deal and sold the company Yeah. to them. Was painting and sculpting becoming more important in your life right at the same time you decided to get rid of A&M to Polygram? Not really. Were those two things intersecting? No. No. No, I've been painting for 42 years. I, I started painting in 1970. I'm not a Sunday painter. I'm not a Sunday artist. I do it every day. You know, traveling in the 60s with the Tijuana Brass around the world, I used to go to museums, and I'd go to the modern art section for whatever reason. It, that just appealed to me. And, you know, I see these paintings, uh, you know, like a black painting with a purple dot or something hanging on the wall, and I think, hmm, uh, let me try something like that. Yeah. I wasn't doing it to think uh, something would come of it. I'll tell you what's great, and I'm, I know, Alec, you know about this. It's just there's something about being an artist, being a musician, being a painter, being a sculptor. When you're doing it, you're in the exact moment of your life. <laughs> and that's rare, you know? When you're not in that mode, you're, you're thinking about yesterday or tomorrow or some other hazerai that really doesn't make any yeah. sense. But when you're doing it, man, it just feels so right on the moment. I feel that way when I'm on my boat. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, the, well, cool. I don't paint, and I don't. I wish I could paint. Uh-huh. Well, you should try it. I mean, when I started painting, I painted like a monkey. You know, I was just, I squeezed some paint on a canvas and moved it around. With yeah, like my, a kid. Yeah. You had no training. I, no training. I didn't know what I was doing. But I think there's an advantage to that. I think when you're an amateur and you're just fooling around, you have infinite possibilities. You know, if you go to a professional, they'll tell you what not to do and what to do and how to do it and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't know about that. I just did whatever. I'm always going for a feel. You know, it's, it's, I do that in music and sculpting and painting. It's like I'm not looking for something that's going to, uh, you know, excite my eyes. I want something that excites my soul, you know, yeah. something that really resonates. I'm assuming there's no preference between paint and canvas and sculpture for you. You enjoy them both equally. I do. I got a copy from uh, your office of the Black Totems exhibit and the work you've done. Now, these are obviously immense pieces. They're enormous pieces. They're 18-footers in bronze. And And are these exclusively for people who have cliffside homes in Malibu with Uh, acres of land? Not really. I'm not interested in really selling. uh, No, I know. I'm just saying they're big. They're big. Yeah, they're huge. I, I think of my homes in New York and on Long Island. I would be interested in buying the lower four feet of this one. <laughs> if we could cut this into sections, actually, that would be kind of that would work quite well for me. Oh, I right. don't have 18 feet in Manhattan, I'm side, <laughs> but they're absolutely stunning. Wow. 
This is Alec Baldwin, and I'm talking with Herb Alpert. More in a minute. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, today talking with Herb Alpert. What is music for you now? I know that's the, the ultimate cliched question, but how do, you, how do you view the music world now beyond zeros and ones and the digital and everything? You must be sitting home and sometimes you sit there and go, wow, that sounds great. I really dig that. Well, you know, I have really varied tastes. So uh, I love classical music. I love, you know, listening to Ravel. Who are your favorite composers? Ravel. Ravel. Yeah, I love Ravel. Me I mean, actually, Ravel taught me a lesson. Actually, I was going to SC for a, a few moments. I was in the orchestra there. And they were playing um, pictures at an exhibition. You know, I was in the orchestra playing that. The Mazorsky. Yeah, Mazorsky wrote it. Ravel uh, arranged it. Arranged it. Hmm, good for you. And uh, they were playing the last one of Great Gate of Kiev, you know. And I was, like, so intrigued with the sound of the orchestra. I was leaning forward, listening to everybody, and it sounded like, wow, it's like natural stereo. And I forgot to come in. <laughs> I forgot to come in on my part. Right at that moment, I thought, hey, you know, this isn't for me. What I really want to do is just close my eyes and play. I love Miles Davis. I love Louis Armstrong. I love those guys that just, you know, create. I want to try doing that. And so I started, you know, working on jazz, which is a very specific language. I mean, just because you want to play jazz doesn't mean you can play yeah. jazz. Had you been asked to score a lot of films? Did you pass up? You must have been asked to score Well, tons I of did. Films. I did the title song of uh, Casino, Royale. Casino Royale with Burt Backrack, but that was about it. No, I don't think that's my thing. I, I, I don't. 
I don't think I'm, you didn't feel I, it. I didn't feel it. I didn't but you would have been great at that. I uh, Maybe been. my wife thinks I should still, you know, pursue that. But you know, I had an experience. This is like a little different uh, aside. But uh, I was in the studio recording the um, Going Places album, and the brass was already going crazy. I mean, we were selling. You know, little, it was going well. Yeah, it was going well. And I get a call from my partner. I said, "We," and the album wasn't finished yet. I get a call from Jerry, and he says, "We just have advanced orders of a million four hundred thousand." And I got depressed. Felt like, gee, you know, if people love the album, buy it. If you don't, you know, this. Uh, I just, it was a strange feeling. I. I why? I, I know it sounds a little. But why? I just didn't want to be prejudged. I mean, I, I wanted people to listen to the album, hear right. it, and, and if they liked it, buy it. Purity it, is what you seem yeah, to be after. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to be too altruistic, no, but I mean, yeah, I was looking for that real ride. Until we find a better word, we'll say purity. Okay. Well. You know, I was looking for that ride. Yeah. You like it, buy it. I love yeah. it. Where did you meet your second wife? Okay. Well, you're obviously madly in love with it. Yeah, so you don't know that story. All right. Let's hear it. This is good. So, you know... Uh, Musicians in love is always in, a good story. In 1966, uh, I auditioned uh, Brazil 66, Sergio Mendes. Sergio Mendes. Brazil 66. Lonnie was the lead singer. Jerry and I signed them to a long-term contract. This was when the brass was really cooking, and we hired them to open the show for us. So they were playing for 18,000 people at a time. Lonnie and I became friends. We were just really good friends. She's very unusual. She's from Chicago. She can sing in Portuguese like a, like a native. Beautiful voice. And, um, and she loves music. Oh, do, you have, do you have a similar kind of a, I don't want to say passion for music, but do you have a similar ethic for music? Is she... Oh, completely. She loves jazz. She loves you know, all, all kinds of music, but... Uh, we are really the opposites, you know. She's oh. um, well. Uh, I'm really quiet. I'm really kind of like a low key type of guy. Yeah. She's more, you know, has more energy and more zip zap. More and, outgoing. Yeah, more outgoing. Who makes the dinner reservations out there in, in California for you? Who's who's picking the restaurants? Your wife. <laughs> no, she doesn't. I do that. You, oh, do you really? Yeah. I just want to look at my wife and I want to go, whatever you say, baby. What do you, what do you want to have? You want Indian food? You got it, baby. I don't want to have to make those decisions. I got other stuff I got to think about. Yeah, no, it's just kind of mutual with us. I mean, she's, um, you know, I met her at a time and we became friendly and she was able to identify my neurosis. <laughs> Which is what? Well, you know, at the time I was going through a divorce and I couldn't play the horn. How did that manifest itself? Well, took a trip to Europe. Uh, we had a little time off. When I got back, we had some obligations to go back to Europe and do some concerts. And I had like two or three weeks to get back in shape, and I just couldn't do it. I, my, my tongue wouldn't go in the right place. I was all bottled up. I was stiff. My neck was tight. Couldn't make a sound out of the horn. It was really painful. You know, I was uh, really upset about the divorce, yeah. and I had, uh, you know... A bottle of Melanta at my side there. <laughs> so, you were, you were God, unhappy. There was a hole in the stomach, you know, and I, yeah. I just wasn't happening. And I just couldn't execute. I couldn't play the whole. How long did that last? Oh, it lasted for years. Really? Uh, yeah, it did. It. I mean, it, it finally wound what years its were those? way down. Well, 1969, 70, 71, So right after you have this huge crest of the greatest score as a, as a performer of your life, 
you kind of crash and you don't did you literally didn't play well i played but it was painful i i had an experience in germany i did you know had this obligation to play uh these concerts in europe i was in germany in frankfurt and i was on the stage painfully playing and all of a sudden i had this out of body experience all of a sudden i was in the third row looking at me you know i was thinking to myself well gee this guy is usually pretty comfortable on the stage but when he's you know off the stage and he's in a in a room of uh, you know at a party or whatever he's totally out of control which i felt i was at the time i said when i get back to los angeles after this series of concerts i'm going to either throw this horn away sell A&M, do whatever i, I just want to find out who i am and why i'm here i mean everybody's looking for the same thing i think a life of purpose and meaning i mean yeah. without that what else is there yeah. Luckily, I, I met a teacher in New York here. His name was Carmine Caruso. He played violin. He played saxophone. He didn't play trumpet, but he taught a lot of trumpet players. He likened the musician to an athlete, and you had to sink your body muscles to rhythm. And over a period of time, I, I just kind of unwound this terrible problem I had. How long did it take? It took... Um, before I was really comfortable, probably uh, eight years. Really? Yeah. Did you do that when you started painting? Well, no, that's an interesting question. You know, but you said you started painting since 1970. Yeah, I did. And you started to lose your mojo horn-wise in 69. Yeah, right. Did, did painting and sculpting come into your life as you found you didn't want to play the horn? Well, sculpting came in later. Painting was uh, a big relief. You had to have somewhere to put that energy. Exactly. Um, it was a rough period for me. I, I've, I've, well, yeah. I've been there, man. Yeah, yeah. I've been there. I, and mine is a result of a divorce, too, you know? Yeah. And not like I thought I needed to be, to stay in that marriage, but it was the way that those things end sometimes. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> you no, just sit there and go, you know, like, this is not... Yeah, not what, what you I, planned it. Well, not what I bargained for. Right? <laughs> like, we're, well, let's hit rewind here and get back <laughs> and try to figure this out, man. And hit delete. <laughs> yeah, let's, we got we to we do this again. Let's, when did you marry your current wife? What year? 74. So 74. Yeah. So during this time, mm -hmm. there's years of you not feeling great, and yeah. then you meet her, and you meet this woman who's obviously the love of your life. Right. But at the same time, I was still playing. I was, sure. like I said, I was playing the You're horn. You're forcing yourself to play. Well, forcing myself. In 74, we had a command performance for the Queen of England. We played, uh, we played there. And the band sounded... Do you want to brass? Yeah. yeah. band sounded great. And then meet uh, Prince Charles, who said, oh, I have all your records in the, in the den. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't picture the den. Yeah. Met the Queen. Very lovely. Nice smile. Uh, this was in 1974. I was feeling pretty puffed up. I felt good about that. So go out the back door, and there were hundreds and hundreds of people there just waiting for the various artists that were on the show. And this, as I'm walking through the crowd, I hear these two ladies talk. I, I don't know that chap. Who is that chap? And and her friend said, I think that's Sergio Mendez. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh my. After feeling so good. There. I got to get over here more often, man. I got to get these people straightened out. They don't know me from Sergio Mendes. <laughs> yeah. So that well, that's why I think that's a great thing that you're someone who you weren't feeling all that great at that time in your life, but you fooled the king and the queen of England, man. I didn't fool them. The band sounded no, good. No, I'm but, just saying that you, you, got, you got it done. Yeah. But, you know, there's something about, uh, you know, when you're... Uh, you're good at something. You can you can fake it, and 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 nobody really it. knows. You, you know. know? <laughs> yeah, right. No, now for you, 
who's a horn player that you take your hat off? Who's one? Just give me one. You well, just, I just, mean, a, just really dug listening to. Uh, Miles Davis. I, I love Miles. You know, Miles was the real thing. Miles. Why? Was, well, because he was completely authentic. Right. He was just uh, playing the music that was coming out of him. Uh, no compromise. He, he understood space, you know, the, 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 the silence that happens between the notes, you know. He understood that. And I think he was uh, the, the key, uh, you know, jazz musician of the 20th century. I've met some really incredible jazz musicians in my day. And each one has their own little take on how to do it. Yeah. Stan Getz was like a brother to me. Yeah. I produced two albums with Stan, and he played this one song that was just, man, goosebumps were flying up my back. I said, man, what are you thinking when you're playing? And he says, well, I, I think like I'm in front of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem and I'm davening. <laughs> really? <laughs> Stan, man. Yeah. Oh, he was great, man. I love this guy. He wore his stuff right close to the surface. I had an experience with Getz where, you know, I did these albums and he said, can I do anything for you? I said, yeah, man, give me, how about giving me some bebop lessons? He says, sure. He says, how, how honest do you want me to be? I said, just because I'm just trying to get up to my own water level. I didn't play with Charlie Parker like you did. I just want to see how far I can take this thing. He says, fine. I'm in my studio at home, and he's sitting down. I said, you think for one, I should work on the 251 chords in every key, which is page one, if they teach at Berkeley. I mean, that's how they, you know, they start this thing. 251 is in all pop songs. It's just one of those things. I said, do you think I should work on this in every key? The two five one chords, you know what he said? What's that? <laughs> he didn't think like that. I mean, those old timers didn't play off of that shit that they're teaching at school, you know. What do you think made Sinatra Sinatra? Oh man, very musical. He really was smart. He was grateful to the songwriters. Oh yeah, and the musicians oh, whom he man. knew they made him. Oh, he was, he, he brought what he brought, but he was a cut above, man. The guy was he was magic. And plus, the sound in his voice was beautiful. His timing, but I learned a great lesson. You know, when things started happening for me, my ex-wife was uh, friends with Nancy Sinatra, and and I met Frank, and I stayed at his house, and then we flew to uh, Las Vegas. Anyway, after the show, Frank comes up to me. He says, you want to play some Bakra? I said, I don't know how to play, but I'll go with you. He sits down at the Bakra table. I'm, I'm standing behind him. And in 20 minutes, he must have won around $27,000, dollars I don't know. And Nancy was standing right next to me. So every time he won a pot, he'd throw off like 10 $100 bills to Nancy. So she had this pile. It looked like a bowling ball in her hands of... of, of hundred dollar bills and so Frank gets up abruptly and he he just leaves you know and Nancy looks at me and says I hear Herbie go take some of this and go gamble and I looked at this pile I said what do you mean take me you, you want me to take a half a pound you want what are you talking about yeah. and I realized at that point man I, I'm never going to treat money like that I'm going to you know honor it in a, a whole different way it's not yeah. going to be that uh, 
frivolous. Herb Alpert established the Herb Alpert Foundation in the 1980s, giving away money his way ever since. In 2007, he gave $30 million to form the Herb Alpert School of Music at UCLA. I love music. I think music needs to survive. I think jazz needs to survive. It's a great American legacy. It's such an important ingredient for a kid's health, you know, and I think through that they learn discipline, and which can help them in the academics, so it's just a natural. It should be a core subject. Do you teach? Do you go over there and guest teach and so forth? No, I don't, but I, you know... <laughs> I'm not, that's really not my strong suit. I think they would be very happy for you to show up, though, wouldn't they? Well, they do. Isn't that your great gift that you just have to play you, and it's all I, there? I think my great gift is that I have my own personality on the horn. A lot of musicians are trying to track Miles Davis or try to track Charlie Parker or try to play like. You know, I'm just trying to tr play like myself, and that's, uh, I think, what everybody should be going for, their own unique voice. It's just been, it's been a nice ride. I feel thankful. Herb recently finished a sold-out two-week run at the Carlisle Hotel with his wife, singer Lonnie Hall. And I mean sold out. He couldn't get me any tickets. This is Albert and Hall performing I Feel You. Just another afternoon on the sidewalks of London. All the gray and rainy days run together Hidden in the streets of stone Suddenly I'm not alone I feel you I feel you Every time I think I've lost you, it seems like you find me Blowing through me like the winds of December Though you've gone away so far, still I turn and there you are I feel you, I feel you feel you beside me, my head on your shoulder, your fragrance, your laughter, your touch. I'm lost in remembering reasons I miss you so much. How could I ever think about a lifetime happens without you even if my only hope is a memory please don't let us be apart wrap yourself around my heart let me
This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.